Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today. All right, welcome back to the Detroit is Different podcast studios. And I am here once again uh, with another special guest, a fellow MC and also a person that uh, handles a lot of business, but more so community work, a father, uh, you know, music, uh, business ventures and vegan food. <laughs> Greg McKenzie, G-Mac, how you feeling? I'm feeling good. Peace, peace. What up, though? Definitely. Everything is good, man. So um, with that, uh, first, pull the mic a little bit closer to you. Okay. All right. Cool, cool, cool. All right. We good. Uh, let's go through, like, your Detroit story. You know, I know you as a person that uh, does accounting, a person that is a heck of a person on the microphone as an MC, uh, organizing events, uh, connections, and mutual friend Yusef Shakur community movement builders, Akibalon Village, uh, definitely staunch Eastside supporter. But along with that, uh, RBG, love all the time. You got a Detroit story. And that's what Detroit is different is um, about your Detroit story. Um, and, you know, you're promoting a special event on behalf of Alkibalon Village. That's what brings you in today. Yeah, but yeah. Let's get to your Detroit story. Your people. How did you get to Detroit? Uh, mom, dad, how did they connect here? So, you know, like everybody else, my folks got here through migration. They were here, born and raised in Detroit, but both of their families came up from the South. Mm -hmm. uh, my father's side from Arkansas, my mother's side um, from somewhere in the deep South, but ultimately Detroit right before they got here, they were in Chicago. And that's unique because like I always say with the migration patterns, uh, a lot of people from Arkansas and like further West usually end up like Arkansas, Mississippi, uh, just with the migration patterns kind of followed the rare world lines, ended up in Chicago. So a lot of Alabama, Georgia, a few Florida here and there are in Detroit. So being that you said Arkansas, I was like, man, I assume you got a lot of family in Chicago. So not that I know of, interestingly, mm. um, but that's on my McKenzie side, my mm -hmm. father's folks. Um, and my mother's family is, like I say, Chicago, mm -hmm. right? So I guess hmm, that's an interesting connection that you just made with me. I was talking to an elder, Baba K, Baba Kafugu, not too long ago over at the Mamakua house, Yusef Shakur. And um, rapping with him, he was talking to me. He was saying, where are my people from? And he could tell Arkansas was in there somewhere. Hilarious. Because he's got Arkansas Hilarious. roots. And he said, I present like somebody who got it's some like folks got from a, Arkansas. You got an Arkansas draw. Yeah, like, <laughs> he, had that, he had that eye to understand like the migration, like where your people from, mm -hmm. even to ask that question, to trying to start to make some determinations about folks based on that. So uh, that's interesting. This is the second time within two weeks that I've had a conversation about that. So this is something I'm going to start paying a little more attention to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's just, you know, culture and patterns. Uh, Detroit is different. It's built a whole lot on the culture and the patterns of everything. So, you know, we try to uh, stay on the whole thing and, you know, keep that in the mix when we think of what's happening through Detroit is different. Um, and on that tip, uh, I definitely have more so the question of your people getting here. When when did they get here? 50s, 60s, 40s, uh, whenabouts? Yeah, so I'm going to be honest, man. I'm not that well-versed in my history like that uh, about my personal family. Mm. I know that my parents both were born and raised in Detroit. Okay. And I know that their folks, they know for a fact, came here from somewhere else. Okay. So... If I had to date it, it would probably be like the 20s somewhere. Wow. Because that's about the time where my grandparents were children. And so their folks maybe migrated here in, what, during their childhood. But I know at least by the time the 40s came around, mm -hmm. they were here because my parents were born here, both. Okay. So when we think about that whole mix of being here for, for a while, like entrenched in Detroit, what are those neighborhoods, your mom's neighborhood, your dad's neighborhood, where were they from? So we was uh, everybody was on the east side, man. My father, <clears throat> his neighborhood was Robinwood and uh, I-75. Mm. So right up in there, 7 Mile and I-75 type of 
area. My mother on what son, side of uh, what side of the bridge would that put it? So I would say closer to State Fair or closer to like uh, Persian. Closer to State Fair. It was seven one seven West Robinwood. So like, if you if you were at the intersection of Seven Mile and I seventy five, um, one block south of that intersection mm-hmm. is Robinwood. Okay. You know what I mean? And they were right there, like right behind that gas station. I know exactly what you're yeah, talking about. His house that, was right there. That right now, currently, when I think of like neighborhoods that uh that definitely uh you, you should know somebody over there if you venturing over there. That's <laughs> that's one of those neighborhoods, meaning right. that uh Meaning you want to be familiar. You don't, yeah. you don't want to be a stranger roaming around that area. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I don't know what it was like back then. What do you remember about I mean, that neighborhood? It was, it was love. I mean, but mm. it was where we went all the time. So I didn't know anything different. You know, mm-hmm. my my grandfather was a a factory worker, as many okay. of our folks were. Mm-hmm. Um, and which one? I think Chrysler. That's okay. what's coming to my head, but I could be wrong. But the mm-hmm. bottom line, he didn't work there for real. He uh he would be. With us, barbecuing hmm. at the house. Okay. And then he'd be like, hey, I'll be back. I got to go punch out. Hilarious. But Hilarious. that was, you know, that's 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 what it was. We would, we spent time there as a family. We got together. Primarily, to me, it was around the barbecue grill. That was the ultimate family gathering. And then uh, we would play cards and, you know, the kids would do the kids thing. The grownups would do the grown-up thing. All right. So uh, th- this mix, uh, your grandfather... The other side of the family. Where mm-hmm. what about? You talk about Robin Wood, where else? So my mom's folks was off of Fleming and Davidson. Ah, okay. Davidson Fleming over in, in that neighborhood. Okay. And so um ironically, both of my grandparents, both of my sets of grandparents, had after hours in their homes as a business, as a side business. Okay, so, when you say after hours, like a card playing party, a dice game, just a, a sold, little bit of drinking. Yeah, they you know. sold they sold alcohol and folks came mm-hmm. and played cards okay. and other table games. As a kid, I didn't, uh, I wasn't smart enough to really figure out all of what was happening. Mm-hmm. But folks was always mm-hmm. over having a good time at Granddaddy House on both sides of the street. What I found out later is that that's how my parents met. Hmm. Both my my grandmother was friends with my mother's father. So my father's mother was Uh friends with my mother's father. Hmm. And they shared business network and resources because they were doing the same thing. And so that's how my dad met my mom. So kind of like just, uh, as we say, the underground economy, kind of interconnecting some of the same resources. You Mm -hmm. ran out of cognac. uh, You know, they just broke this table playing dominoes. Somebody just hit dominoes. So I need an extra chair. I need an extra table. All that type of jazz. This is... This is the network that kind of brought both of them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also this kind of puts, I guess, you in a in a in a social class where, you know, probably like going to the store with your grandparents as a kid, you were like a star. Yeah. Yeah, they were somebody in the neighborhood. Okay. And so, um, but we didn't go to the store with grandpa a lot. You know, okay. you didn't get to ride with him a lot. He was <laughs> he was in his own thing, you know. Uh he had, you know, the fly car and all of that kind of stuff. We just thought he was working at the plant. But later mm-hmm. we would find out these other things was happening. And on my on the other side of the family, my grandmother and grandfather parted ways mm-hmm. sort of early in my childhood. So grandpa kept doing his thing, but we saw less and less of that. And okay. we sort of just saw my grandma and her being a, a, a devout a religious person and taking us to church on wednesday and sunday wow um so bible study mm-hmm. and service making us listen to martha jean the queen wqbh <laughs> am and all of that <laughs> all right now now this this childhood is, is something that is a classic story and that's why like i like to you know thread and interweave because in the details we we see what aligns many people's stories together um amongst this that's the persian neighborhood uh, when we think about that neighborhood, it's, you know, it, it's a lot like just over there. Did you grow up around there or did your parents actually live further out? No. So we grew up over there. You know, um, we ended up not, you know, getting our family home not too far from where my parents 
families lived. So originally we were born on the west side, not far from here, off Linwood on mm -hmm. Pasadena. Mm -hmm. Um, the other side of Linwood from where we are right now. Mm -hmm. But we only stayed there for a few years. By the time we were four years old, my father was very good at lawsuits all my life. Uh, this is something that he's been able to do consistently. Mm -hmm. And so he had gotten a lawsuit and we bought a house on Shields, 13494 Shields. I still remember my phone number from that. Mm -hmm. uh, but we were right across the street from Shields Pizza. Ah. So uh, that was our special treat. When they could, we would get the Shields Pizza. But mm -hmm. we had the second house off the corner on Shields and Davidson and... Uh, that's where we lived for many years until my parents split up and then we moved. Okay. Now, that neighborhood also uh, anchored, uh, I don't know if you remember R.J. Watkins Arcade. Mm -hmm. uh, if you remember, um, let's see, what else do I think about over there? It's like the Coney Gardens is definitely something people think about uh, oh, yeah. of that neighborhood and uh, the just the, the classic stories of that. And also, it's a lot of churches over there. Mm, yeah, it was a big church on the corner, around the corner of Justine. They used to have a festival uh, mm -hmm. every year. And so I didn't even really see them as a church. I saw them as the place to held the carnival every year. <laughs> uh -huh. But uh, there, yeah, there were, there are a lot of churches there. The main feature to that neighborhood is Jane Field. Though. I don't mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with Jane Field, but mm -hmm. that's like the ball duck park on that side of town. Like There were baseball games jumping off from the beginning of the day to the end of the night every mm -hmm. Saturday and Sunday. And so, you know, Jane Field, we could just walk right up the street and 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 get to it. And so we spent a lot of time at Jane Field, uh, family members being in softball leagues and different things like that. Our house was sort of like an easy launch pad to park and not get in the, into the craziness of what's on loose, which is the street that borders Jane Field. And they could just walk from our house to their game or whatever. And so, yeah, we, we ended up spending a lot of time down at Jane Field. Okay. So, baseball, that's that's unique. Uh, and Jane Field, I am familiar with Jane Field because that's not that far from, um, I want to say that library. I think that library is closed. Yeah, the library right there on Davidson and uh, Conant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They so, changed that. Oh, no, no, no. No, that library is still there. That's the Nap Branch, I believe. Mm -hmm. It's still open. Okay. But there used to be the 11th mm -hmm. Precinct on the corner, and that moved to Nevada. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Um, so what else do you remember about your childhood? Just uh, friends, the neighborhood, uh, the kids over there, the style, you know? So the only thing I remember about my childhood was, you know, playing outside. You know, we put up put up a crate on the garage and you were open for business, for basketball business. So, crate basketball. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we ran, <laughs> we ran all of the grass behind the house down. <laughs> from playing basketball on it so much. It was just a little dirt, a little hard dirt that you could actually dribble on. You would get dusty and filthy, but uh, you didn't care. You had a you know a shot at playing some basketball. And mm -hmm. I would nail the crate to the garage. It would stay up there for a while, but enough you know shots going into the nails eventually worked its way down, and I would have to find another spot. Ultimately, you know, put all kind of holes in the side of the garage. Um, Doing my crate ball, but that's what I remember most: going outside, playing, being in the neighborhood. You know, just being, just being a kid, just being active from the sun up to sundown. All right, so school. What schools did you go to? So school initially, I went to White Elementary School, which was a walking distance right down loose from my house, and then from White we went to Cleveland, and then from Cleveland I went to Cass. Mm -hmm. Um. I got into some trouble later in CAS, and I ended up graduating from Northern. In the last mm -hmm. semester of my 12th grade year, I got kicked out of CAS, but uh, that was primarily my school route. Uh, why did you choose CAS? Because when we think about CAS, just the the anchor, the 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 branding, the the you know the name, everything about CAS. Why did you choose CAS? You know, I didn't know about I didn't know all about the you know the different things that came along with going to CAS. I picked CAS because. Cass picked me, basically, I guess. You know, I I think I picked um, what school I wanted out of the big three at the time. It was Cass, Renaissance, and King. And our counselor said, put Cass first, put Renaissance second, and King last. And I did. And so when I passed the test, I got accepted to go to Cass, and then I, I just went. I would later find out um, that Cass, the ratio of girls to boys at Cass, 
was like extremely high. And that became a super plus. And then <laughs> one of my homeboys that I was uh, boxing with, because that's mm-hmm. something I did also in my childhood. Lasky Recreation Center was right there off Loose by Jane Field. And one of my homeboys that I was boxing with, he got accepted to go to CAS too. Mm-hmm. So this is a friend of mine who I've been friends with since kindergarten. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So uh, we had an opportunity to really go all the way through school together up until about the 10th grade. Hmm. That's deep. That's deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you mentioned uh, boxing. What what sparked you into that? So I, I went boxing. A, a good friend of mine was into it, and um, you know, it was intriguing. It was it was uh, an opportunity through the school where you could you know go into the boxing program after school and train, take trips. It just seemed like a good time. You know, mm-hmm. seemed like a fun. Not to mention, I wanted to improve my fighting skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have a lot of brothers, um, so I learned how to fight by losing, <laughs> fighting. And um, by the time you know, I lost a couple fights, I started being able to turn it around. Mm-hmm. But that, in that process, I also became very angry, and so I had a, I had a a. a, a easy time like turning a conversation into a fight because I mm-hmm. felt like I was going I better fight before they start fighting me that's how I lost them other times when I get the jump then I'm doing a little bit better so mm-hmm. I was finding myself self getting into stuff a lot easier and a lot faster because of that because of my temperament and um, boxing was supposed to help you figure out how to navigate that how to balance that out better Mm-hmm. So I ended up going boxing, uh, me and my homeboy, Omar Green. He was already in it, but um, he pulled me into it, and we had a, we had a lot of fun. How, uh, how long did you do that? Um, I stayed with the boxing program for a couple years. Um, at this time in my life, you know, it's funny, we go through phases, but at this time in my life, I was a follower, and Omar was my mm-hmm. leader. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I'm saying? It's always somebody who you think is cool. They got it all together. You know, they can handle themselves all of these different ways. So I looked up to Omar on that note. And um, when he got in trouble uh, and quit, well, not quit the boxing program, but he was removed ultimately from our circle. He went to Maxie's boys' home. Um, him not being at boxing, I stopped going. Huh. And so I started to find myself outside of, you know, being in a follower type of thought process. All right. So what got you into rhyming? So uh, shout out to my homeboy, Anton Webb, Tone the Well-Known. Um, you know, <laughs> at this time in my life, school was becoming less and less of a priority. And me learning and identifying who I was was becoming more and more of my priority. And so me and Tone used to skip school. Um, and in doing so, we would sit out in the cars in the parking lot. Sometimes they wasn't even our car. Mm-hmm. We would sit out in the cars in the parking lot and um, we would get high, you know, roll up, light and smoke marijuana <laughs> and rap, man. You know what I'm saying? And um, Tone was a prolific MC, man. Still is to this day. But hearing him rap, man, made me feel like, yo, I got to get into that. I got to I gotta get a part of that. So similar to the boxing with Omar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, so in hearing him rapping, he freestyled. Um, and I had a pen. I used to always keep a pen behind my ear. I thought it was cool to do that. And so I had a pen behind my ear, and the pen fell from behind my ear one day when we were in the car just doing our thing, and I started freestyling about that. And then starting to freestyle about that, I realized, like, oh, snap, I can do this too. All right, now, um, at the time, who were you, like, uh, were you listening outside of tone? Like, uh, who was your favorite rappers? Were you listening to hip-hop outside of that? Not really, man. I don't have a classic, like, Knowing all the dope MCs from back in the days, hip hop coming to hip hop story. I mean, I like Tupac. You know, mm-hmm. at that time he was hot. We thinking, we putting it in context. I'm in high school from '91 to '95, so this was probably '93, '94. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, Pac, Big, you know, Nas, 
it's really whatever is popping like on the on the top forty or the on the radio's playlist. I wasn't hip to a lot of the folks who originated and came. I learned about that later. I had to go back and learn about some of that hip hop history. But really, just listening to what was what was available. But it was really your homeboy that was like your favorite MC, oh, yeah, which no is doubt. unique to be that uh, your favorite rapper was like a person you knew and, oh, yeah, and saw rhyme. Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh yeah, man, and he was incredible. Like you know, Tone could freestyle off the top of his head for you know fifteen twenty minutes straight, mm-hmm. like without flaws. Like, and it was it was mind blowing. And then especially when you high, like everything is emphasize the impact is even that much more magnificent it's like wow like how's he doing this mm. and uh yeah hey, man i wanted a part of that so i when i freestyled after the pen fell from my ear you know that was cool i kind of saw that i could dabble at it but i've always been uh a better writer um all through my rap life i freestyle now but i think i write better um but so i i, I went home and tried to write a rap Mm-hmm. And when I did that, my first rap, you know, came out good, according to my neighbors and others who heard it. And so from there, the rest was history. But about, at about 17 in high school, skipping school, I discovered rap. All right. Now, looking up to Tone and having that as like the premise of like the best MC, you know, what would how did you look at rap? Then at that age, did you just look at it like, okay, this is just something I do for fun? Is this something that I really want to make a career of? Like, what was your frame of reference in doing it? Uh, no, nah, it was just, it was dope. It was fresh to be able to rap, you know, and when the, when the moment came for somebody to spit over the beat and you to be somebody to be able to jump in the circle and do that, mm-hmm. that was that was what I was doing it for. Okay. To have a seat at the table, to have a voice in the conversation when folks get to rapping. So you didn't even think like recording a song or, no. or or anything like that. So now we're looking at your journey from Cast Tech. You know, you saying school is kind of getting distant. Um, you don't see a career in rapping. Where's your presence of mind? What's going on? What are you thinking? I mean, so at this time, I'm finding me. You know, I'm I'm figuring out who I am. Um I'm realizing that, you know, I was being, I'm realizing like that I was reliant heavily on the influences from my homeboy Omar. And here I am to some degree replacing Omar with Tone. Mm -hmm. But also, I'm older, I'm more, you know, Omar is an anchor friendship from kindergarten. You know what I mean? Here I am in high school. It's my relationship with Tone, solid brotherhood bond. But it's different from my relationship with Omar. Mm-hmm. It ain't as old. It's newer at that time. So I'm also developing a lot more individuality and self-leadership, you mm-hmm. know. And so, you know, I'm exploring the different aspects of myself. I'm enjoying, you know, that I didn't know that I had a great sense of humor because I'm, I didn't really allow myself to be that way. Um, for whatever reason, maybe I was in my head and I thought that I wasn't, I couldn't or shouldn't be funny or try to make jokes. And so I didn't, but when I did, because I was uninhibited by smoking weed and, and, and just chilling, like I found out that I was funny. Other people thought I was funny. So I was exploring that. I was exploring rap. I was exploring, you know, other things, man, thugging, you know, we got into gang banging and doing all kinds of stuff. Just really like exploring myself beyond the rules of what I'm supposed to be doing during school time. You know, I didn't go to school. By 11th grade, I was doing my own thing during the daytime, you know, and um, on a journey, on a journey of self-discovery. So you mentioned Northern High School. What Mm -hmm. was the difference in that culture shift from Cass to Northern? Man, I didn't even have to go to school at Northern, right? So basically, you needed a certain number of credits to graduate from CAS. Whatever that number was, I had achieved it by the time they kicked me out. Um, which I by, by the way, I got kicked out because I brought a set of the gang that I had joined with my cousin and through being smart, learned the literature, got promoted to the chief violator, brought a whole set 
of the gang to cast. Okay, now break this down to us in right. layman's terms. Right. What is a set of a gang? <laughs> All right, so look, so it was a gang called the Folks. You know, these got these gangs that that follow the stars, the five point star and the six point star. Well, the Folks was a six point star gang off of the east side where my grandma and them came from, right in that neighborhood, off of Greeley and Seven Mile. You know, there was a set of the folks called the Nuts that my cousin was a part of. So I, you know, at this time, I'm doing a lot of things, Kari. I'm I'm experimenting with selling weed, you know, all kinds of things. So I, I hear from my cousin that they got this gang situation jumping off. So I'm like, okay, if I join with them, I could probably get better prices on weed than what I'm getting in Detroit. Because they got so some it's connections like a to functional, Chicago. A functional reason yeah. for getting in the game. Right. I'm trying mm-hmm. to get my hustle on it. You know, me and Tone is doing this together. You know, basically, we we smoking weed like crazy. But also, people are at cast are looking to us to buy the weed. So, um, you know, so I joined the game. Then I come and I get Tone in the game and I get like five other people from cast to come join the game. And so we all go back to cast and then we start to V people in. And so this is what this means is that, you know, we initiated folks through a process of uh, fighting for a period of time. And then if they did well, in our opinion, then they got to join the gang. They had to learn some literature and they had to go through all these different things. But it took off like wildfire, man. It went from, you know, five or six guys to about 20 or 30 guys in a couple months. Hmm. And um, at the time, you know, it was pretty impressive to me. I felt like, you know, it, it was a dope thing that was happening. And so we, we was pushing it. We just kept, you know, just kept expanding. It kept expanding. And so, but the bottom line is um, we got into a fight. Well, one of the younger guys got into a, a fight on the bus with some guys from another school across the bridge, ATB. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were a blood gang, so that was a rival mm-hmm. gang. So they brought a bunch of their guys up to cast to fight with us, and we had this big brawl on uh, Grand River by the bus stop, and ultimately that's where it all came to a head, and I ended up getting kicked out, and um, they found out that you know I was behind it as the chief violator of the set and all these different things. So that's what landed me at Northern. But by the time I got to Northern, I had enough credits by the way, we didn't get no good deals on weed prices by being in the gang. It was a total mm-hmm. waste of time. But, okay. Um, by the time I got to to Northern, I had enough credits from Cass. I didn't even need to go to school to, uh, to, to graduate. graduate. Yeah, so I, I just had to wait. So I got a semester off, basically, for bad behavior. So this was the trajectory, like, of my young life. It was, and this this is the time when Tupac saying five shots wouldn't drop me. I took it and smiled and all this type of stuff. I was feeling invincible. I was feeling like I'm too good. Like I can do anything and mm. still not really get in trouble for real. So now, now as you talk about trouble for real, what's the response of your mom? Like hearing about all this yeah. or seeing all of this, your dad, what, what are you, how's your parent? How are your parents responding to this? Uh, so, you know, my mother was, you know, she was right there. She was really concerned about what was going on with me. And so me, I'm trying to, you know, angle it like it's a positive thing. Like, well, mine, this is really about brotherhood. And it really is. Like, if you ever learn, study the literature from gang culture, it ain't nothing like what you think. Like, you have to learn some really righteous principles. And I didn't know then, but I know now, like, a lot of that positivity got infused by gang leaders later after they realized that the gangs had been hijacked and taken down negative trails Um uh, Folks like uh, Larry Hoover, who infused growth and development instead of mm-hmm. gangster disciples and this, this type of thought process. But I didn't understand that at the time. And so when I came to it, it was something totally different than what I expected. I thought we was just going to be fighting and, and, and doing wild things and, you know, making money, selling drugs. But the reality is we were supposed to be creating a family environment where we wrapped our arms around the younger brothers who didn't have guidance and help them to avoid some of the mistakes that we were making. Hmm. And that was dope. That was always a part of me that that was important to. Um, because I was like, I was like, you know, the big brother for my little cousins. They wasn't my brothers, but they was like the age. I was the age of a big brother to them. And so I felt like 
I don't want y'all to be like me. I don't want y'all to have to lose fights in order to learn how to fight. Like, I'm going to teach you, and I'm going to make you fight. I'm going to make you tough, and I'm going to teach you things you didn't get taught. Nobody showed me, so I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you what I didn't get. I always had this wanting to look out for my little brother's type of vibe because I didn't have any big brothers. And so the gang fit right into that, like a perfect puzzle piece. Um, and so I explained that to my mother, and that resonated with her. But I also got, you know, in trouble for being off the hook and getting kicked out of cast and all of that. But she also didn't like the way that they tried to frame the narrative mm -hmm. and make me out to be like this mega villain when in reality, you know, I, I didn't really have a problematic school record track record or anything like that. It just so happened that, I, you know, I joined this gang. I had this experience and this experience built over this way. But um uh, it's not like, you know, I was the demon seed just coming through, wrecking things all through my experience, you know. Mm -hmm. So Northern, you say it's a whole you're expelled, which is that's heavy for a while. But just due to the 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 pacing of your classes there at cash, you were already there. So even through skipping school, you were still doing all your schoolwork. Yeah, I mean, I was still doing enough of the schoolwork to, you know, to pass with a D. Mm. Like I had one point since and you were like getting by. Just barely, bro. Like mm -hmm. we had this one teacher that we really dug though, man. Miss mm -hmm. McCormick. Shout out to her over at uh Cass. She was our uh English language arts teacher. And I remember doing a research um project uh on hypnosis. That's so funny. But I I did. I, I tried to at least do the minimum to to get by, but I did spend a lot of my time outside of school. And so uh yeah, luckily it was enough to get me through. I was able to uh, walk across the stage, Northern 1995, not taking any additional classes there. I had a senior seminar that I had to attend, which mm -hmm. was like a couple hours a week. It wasn't even full class. So I, you know, here I am getting a whole semester off for bad behavior. And so I'm just feeling like I can do whatever. So after graduation, what was the mission? So after graduation, you know, um, I, I thought I was going to go to work. I was going to join the machinist training program. I was going to uh, go to Focus Hope and get a good job while I was going to college. Mm -hmm. um, but my, my job situation that I had at that moment in time wasn't working out. So, you know, I ultimately ended up uh, deciding that I wanted to be a professional drug dealer. And so um, I got involved in doing some things in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, ultimately from there, I ended up caught up in a uh, a drug raid. Um, and, you know, I'll never forget the smell of the gunpowder from them shooting through the front door with a 12-gauge shotgun and my friend running toward me with his chest leaking and um, me thinking that somebody was coming in there to kill us. And so at the time, I had two guns in, in, my, in my pants pocket, one on each side, and I drew one from one side and I opened the back door thinking that I had to shoot my way out for my life. And I, I, I drew the gun. I could see three figures in black. I couldn't see who they were or what they were. And then I felt myself go back like that and my ears ringing. And I realized I had been shot. Hmm. And um, ultimately what had happened was I was shot in the head with a 37 caliber knee knocker. So this is a a rubber bullet that shot below the waist to stop a fleeing felon. Luckily for me, um, it was a rubber bullet because had it been a lead one where it shot me, I, I, I may not have survived it, but um, it did do some damage to me um, and it caused me to have to go to the hospital for an extended period of time. I also still had to go to, to jail and try and sort out, you know, the reasons why, you know, we were caught up in the drug house in the first place and all of the rest of that. And so it was at that moment in time, this was about May of 1996, where I really started to. So this was like, this moved fast because mm -hmm. you're 95, graduating high school. So mm -hmm. you almost like walking across the stage to like in a heavy, uh, watching a friend die before your eyes and then thinking to yourself, maybe I'm dying before my eyes situation within, what is this, 24 months? 
Yeah, not even. You know, mm. we graduated in June, and then in May of '96, this is happening. So less than wow. a year. Less than a year. This is this is popping off, and uh, luckily, you know, my friend who got shot didn't die. He he survived that, but mm. because they couldn't get through the barricades that we had put on the door, they shot through the window. And uh, he, him being in the front room, he caught the brunt of that, uh, those buckshots in his chest. But um, yeah, so they they shot me in with a rubber bullet. So I hit the ground. My head is bleeding. I'm thinking I got shot mm. with a bullet bullet. And so I'm like, oh God, please don't let me die in a crack house. Like, oh man, this is this is not my life. Like, you know, I before I start going down, um, what I would say was a negative track toward the. The, the the high school years, I did pretty good in school. Uh, that's how I ended up in CAS. I was a good student. I participated in a lot of activities. Um, I got a lot of awards for a lot of things. And so as I'm falling down to the ground in that life flash before your eyes moment, um, you know, and it seemed like it took forever. But as I'm falling to the ground, I'm thinking to myself, like, you done did all this and this is how you're going to end it at 19 in the crack house. And I was so ashamed of myself. Um, I was like, well, what, what is mama going to think? You know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about her. And um, I was just like, damn. So, but once I, once my vision came back and I could see, you know, the blood coming from my head and I could see that I wasn't dead, uh, you know, and they proceeded to arrest us the way that they, they do in this very gruesome military style with blood rushing from my forehead. They got... Uh, some assault rifle with a flashlight on it at, at my face. They put the zip ties on me, pick, picked me up by the back of my shirt, took me outside. They began continue to interrogate us at gunpoint. I mean, and I ain't talking about no pistol, like some type of army-style assault rifle with a flashlight on it, mm-hmm. asking us questions, what are you doing here? And somebody stopped like, hey, listen, put them in the EMS, like, because the one brother was bleeding all out his chest. I'm bleeding out my head. Like, it looked like they just came in there just to kill us. And so, um, you know, we ultimately ended up going to the hospital, getting medical attention. And then from getting that medical attention, um, ended up going into the juvenile detention facility because the people that I was hustling with said, listen, if you get caught, say that you're 16 because they're seeing you the juvenile. We can get you out quicker. So I lied and made up a birthday and all these different things. And um, it didn't work. I got stuck. So I ultimately, after being stuck, still had to tell him my real birthday and all that stuff just to get out. So it was a whole ordeal. But once I did get out of that situation several months later in 96 and came home, you know, I had decided I wanted to do three things. I wanted to go to Lewis College of Business like my mother did. I wanted to start a carpet cleaning company, and I wanted to um, get back with my old girlfriend. Okay, now, uh, a couple of different things to stand out. You got a frame of reference for Lewis College Business through your mom. Carpet mm-hmm. cleaning. What what stood out about carpet cleaning? Um, So, you know, I just felt like it was a business that I, oh, that's what brought me to carpet cleaning. Um, I I sold Kirby vacuums. Hmm. Okay. 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 So in selling Kirby vacuums, I, I, I learned that you could clean carpet with this machine uh, as good as a Hagopian. And by the, at this time in my life, them companies was blowing up. Hagopian and mm-hmm. carpet cleaning was lit like that that time. So it was an option. It was a way, like a business that I could get into. And by selling the Kirby's, I'm like, I already got the machine because I bought one. It mm. was, you know, so and I. St- by the way, I still had that Kirby to this day. I was. <laughs> I guess I was that's ni- an effective. I was uh, <laughs> that's an effective uh, piece of equipment. Then I was nineteen I guess when I bought that. Kirby. Anybody that you bought, anybody that bought one from you, was like, "Hey, I was right buying one from that young man." Listen, they probably still got theirs. <laughs> And I bought mine used. On top of that, uh-huh. bro. So Kirby makes a superior. But the bottom line is, um, so yeah, I had the equipment. And mm-hmm. it was something that I thought I could do pretty easily. So started a company called Young Men of Positive Intentions. The acronym was mm. Mop It. Mm. And it was more than carpet cleaning. It was janitorial service. But um, we went out and we started doing cleaning, but primarily focusing on trying to get that carpet cleaning. Market. So so you 
you're starting to go to you're you're going to a business school, and mm-hmm. I, I went to Lewis College of Business too. Shout, Shout out, out Lewis to LCB. Um, you hear they bringing it back, right? I've I've heard that, and we'll yeah, we, we'll we we, to, that's we a whole nother discussion yeah, with Dr. Allen. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> but with that, you're you're going to business school and starting a business at the same time. You right. you definitely have some experience with hustling, which right. hustling in business. And that's hustling anything. So for mm-hmm. people that know, when I say the difference between a hustle and a business is this, and, the, and you can hustle legitimately, but I think business people think way more long-term. A hustle is how do I maximize profits as much as I can, like right now? Mm-hmm. Meaning that like a hustle would be something like a, your your cousin or a legitimate hustle would be like your, your cousin for some reason ended up with... Um, you know, um, a, a hundred different uh, special designer T-shirts because they were in the military. And he was like, yeah, I'm shipping back these uh, special designer T-shirts. But you don't have any way to 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 go back and get the same price. It's not it, it's inconsistent. You don't know really where you got it from. You can't long term set up for like, OK, 10 years down the line, I expect the price point to be this. And I'm going to evaluate my vendors and I know who my target audience is. It's like my target audience is whoever will cop it. And I need to maximize as much money as right now. Hence, a lot of hustlers have a lot of hustles because today the best hustle may be. Um, yeah, today the best hustle may be uh, scalping a ticket to the Lions game. And and then like three hours later, they get, hey, guess what? Uh, we got these uh we got these brand new fur coats in town. So now that's a better hustle, boosting right. some clothes or whatever. It's 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 not as consistent in staffing, vendor, uh, your supply chain, you know, as we finding out the supply chain ain't that consistent right now, period. Hello. But uh that's the big difference when when I talk it. And, uh, you know, I get into a lot of debates, especially here in this neighborhood, about uh, about the differences between both. But mm-hmm. you go into a business uh, and then very young and you're a black man starting a business. What was that experience like? Oh, man. Why my it was love, man. We um, so so when I came home from from being locked up in Columbus, Ohio and all of that. When I wrote, when I came up with that name, Young Men of Positive Intentions, you know, I really meant that. Um, I wanted to align myself with other brothers who thought like me. So first of all, I thought my life was spared for a reason. And so because of that, I felt like I had an obligation to do something very constructive, um, particularly to steer young fellas out of the trap, what they call the trap now. Um, I wasn't calling it that, but just steer them out of that lifestyle into mm-hmm. something more constructive. And so... Um, you know, again, this this recurring theme of me feeling like I need to be the big brother uh, to some theoretical brothers of mine that I have that need my guidance. But it's just been a recurring theme through my life. And so Young Men of Positive Intentions was, you know, the next chapter in that journey. And we we went out and got contracts with companies who needed service i walked up and down seven mile on the west side and went door to door and did you what were your marketing materials did you have a brochure where you just like yo straight up you see this vacuum (laughs) i get down my g (laughs) so so to be honest with you i did put together like a little flyer for myself okay Um, okay how did you go about that so when i was you know i was at lewis i was learning some things okay about how you set up a business my first Mm -hmm. class intro to business had me write a summary or or a outline for a business plan. And this is what's so unique about it. You're actually in a business class taking that information, applying it same day. Like that's it. Usually, you know, it's all theoretical because it's like this is intro to bit. It's like, hey, all right, what do I need to do? Right. <laughs> and I was right at it. So <laughs> we went out there and I, you know, I created price lists. I created a referral system. And I borrowed a lot of stuff from Kirby Vacuum too. Um <laughs> But the bottom line, it was working. If it ain't broke. <laughs> no, nah, I went door to door. That's what we did with Kirby. I went door to door. I told people about me, what I was doing, young men of positive intentions. Just give me a chance. We want to come in and I clean up for you. Beauty salons and barbershops was my um, main market that I went after. I wanted consistent accounts where I can go, you know, two, three times a week and clean up. Um, Makes sense. And, and I got it. You know, quick salon on Seven Mile, uh, Reds on Seven Mile, like with some of my first formative clients on the west side of Seven Mile in the uh, beauty salon district, if you will, uh, near Southfield and Seven Mile area. You, and you keep using the term we. So who mm-hmm. who are the we? 
So yeah, I do keep using we. I mean, it was me and it was my homies. You know, the people who I okay. who I felt <laughs> like you know belonged to this young men of positive intentions idea. Because you're you're taking on in the taking on the we and having uh, contractors or employees. Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother hat too. You're taking on a management hat. You that's, you know what I'm saying? I, I, hey, guess what, man? But the basketball game is going on, and it's right. like, oh man, you you working? You're scheduling. You're mm-hmm. you're staffing. You're 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 making sure that there. It's like, all right, nah, you, you got to wear somewhat of a uniform because you represent us. Oh, we had know? shirts. We had uh, <laughs> polo style shirts with the okay. young men of why mop it. You know, and then your mm. name under it. He had a pr- real professional appearance. Okay. And so people, they was rocking with it because I, I was walking the walk and talking the talk. Um, and all of this, you're, you're, you're still, 19, you know. 19, 20. Fre- yeah, you're 20 years. You're not even able to buy a drink yet. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And this is so unique. And do you think uh, those lessons you learned then, because for me, it's like that usually, those younger lessons, do they still stick to you? Like, uh, what business lessons did you learn from Why Mop It that you still apply today? Yeah, I mean, you know, following through, doing what you say you're going to do. Um, that's the that's the biggest one right there. If you can gain the trust of your customer and they know that you are dependable and they can rely on your promise, then you will consistently have them as a customer. And if you make a mistake or if you do something wrong, own it and fix it. Mm. And uh, they will forgive you. We're only human. Mm-hmm. And um, you don't, you know, we don't always mean to do the things that we do, but we do them. And so, but if you can own it and then, you know, make it right with them, they'll appreciate your humility. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, then maybe that, you know, that wasn't the best person for you to be working with anyway, but... Those are some uh, those are some heavy lessons, I think, especially for a younger entrepreneur watching this, because sometimes a problem will will occur. uh, And, you know, people it's easy to just want to, like, you know, shrivel up, cower and kind of avoid it, almost like avoid just owning the. Yeah, we we messed up right here. Exactly. Um, This is our bad. Let me Mm -hmm. give you some money back and Mm -hmm. let me provide the service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, fix it, whatever, whatever fix it means. And I just being fair and honest with people, you mm-hmm. know, I I personally, so I'm happy later in life I found a philosophy called my art that really resonates with who I am and how I operate. But I personally already subscribe to a different sense of what was right and what was wrong. So it wasn't really like that I was doing it to please my customer, but I felt that I had an obligation, a moral calling on my life being spared to lose my life in the crack house in Columbus, Ohio, I felt that I didn't have time to be off point or to be Mm -hmm. playing with people. You know, I had to fulfill my mission Mm -hmm. because I had been given this second chance. And so that, that really like caused me to move differently, more seriously, more focusedly. So while my friends was partying, they was partying right around me. I had apartments, and different things, and they would be right there partying or whatever. They'd be like, come on, G, come on, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, hold on, I got to finish this paper. And I'm on my laptop banging out my work. And then after my work is done, of course, I'm going to join the party. party. I'm 20, yeah. 21, you know what I'm saying? This is the prime of my life. I got an apartment. I got a, you know, 85 Cadillac Eldorado. I wasn't rich, but I was all right, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. I, and so I, I was living. But at the same time, I also, you know, learned also to prioritize, I had this motto, you know, I do what I got to do, then I get to do what I want to do. And hmm. so um, that had that I had learned in high school, sort of like my mother had rules. But if I did the things that she wanted me to do, um, then it was nothing that I couldn't do. Hmm. So I got to go and do other things that I wanted to do based on me doing the little simple things. So I used to always argue with my cousins, like, why are you fighting with your mom about the dishes or whatever little small petty chores that she wants you to do. Do those before she even asks you about it. Mm-hmm. And then do some extra stuff. Then ask her whatever you want, and she going to let you do it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I felt like they were overcomplicating. And I feel like children still today, I watch them do it all the time. They overcomplicate something very simple. If you just ever figure out that there's certain things that your parent want you to do, and you just do them, then when you get ready to ask them about stuff that you want to do, they're going to look and be like, you know what? They did everything that I wanted them to do. Yes. 
you can okay. do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so so I know I'm accelerating because this is such a deep interview and, and right. I know we're talking uh a lot about the younger you. What right. what ends up connect I mean, because now you've taken on so many iterations of other businesses and mm-hmm. other things like that. Mm-hmm. Um and today you're really here for the Alkibalon Village. How mm-hmm. did you connect with Alkibalon Village? So Alkibalon Village, I connected through with my mother. Um, huh. So my mother, um, who, by the way, joined the Ancestral Ram last year in August. Yeah. And um, so God she, bless will, yeah, she will forever be a guiding force in, in my life. And now I refer to her energy because it's still around me as the eternal maternal. It's the mother mm-hmm. that I had before I had a mother and after my my mother is living in the flesh, that eternal maternal energy is still around me and and guides me to do the things that I need to do. But um, through her relationship with Linda Crawford, who was their accountant, Linda was my mother's prized student. My mother taught at Lewis. Not only did she go to Lewis, but she ended up teaching at Lewis. Hmm. And so um, she was teaching accounting at Lewis. And Linda was one of her, you know, prized students. And Linda got the contract to do the accounting at Alkibalon. Mm-hmm. But she was, you know, hesitant about her ability to handle it, um, being such a large institution and all of these other things. And so she And wait, on that point, let's uh let's open up on that. Alkibalon Village started by uh so many other people, but when I think of it, I think of the master teacher Marvis Cofield, mm-hmm. uh, when we think of bringing martial arts to the black community for generations. So uh Alkibalon Village has a history that's been going on for decades as well. And uh, when we think of black martial arts, really, when you think of black, you think Detroit or vice versa. You know, Detroit, you think black. But uh, martial arts uh, for black students, you think Alkibalon Village. And this institution on Detroit's east side uh, was anchored and has grown for years. So, like, the programming is entrepreneurial training, it's martial arts, it's music, it's it's uh it, it's food, it's uh it, it's so much that that like you know just keeps expanding. Kwanzaa programs, cultural programs, uh clothing, uh trips to Africa, like it is a very multifaceted organization. It's mm. not it's not a block club. Let's put it like that. So <laughs> now you can kind of pick up with your story of, of right. uh, the students saying like, all right, this is, right. this ain't, this, you know what I'm saying? This Absolutely. isn't a, a regular, you know, profit loss statement right here. This ain't exactly. credits and debits, you know? So she knew it was a big, a big task. They get a lot of, of funding that requires audit, um, audits to be completed every year. And in order for your financial statements to be audited, they have to be tight. Yeah. All of your paperwork and documentation, all of that stuff, there can't there can be no holes in any of that process. And so she she was capable of doing it, but just to be sure, she hired my mother, mm. her teacher. And so my mother, through her company, Unicorn Unlimited, which I've continued, so she hired Unicorn and my mother said, Gregory, I don't want to drive over to the east side every week. You take that contract. And Interesting. You look over the stuff with Linda, and if you have mm-hmm. any questions, I'll back you. So I started working with Linda, looking over the things. At this time, I'm working. So first on- off, uh, that's your first time going to Alkibalon Village, right? Nope, nope. Okay. That wasn't my first time. That's all, that's the comeback. Okay. So originally, after I graduated from Lewis, my homeboy Nana Kwekuemi Saedu, which is an ancestor now, his grandmother Malkia Brantuo, mm. uh, got me and him a job at Timbuktu Academy. Okay. So while we were working at Timbuktu Academy down the street from Alkibalon Village. Timbuktu didn't have a gym or an auditorium. Mm-hmm. So any major assembly or program yeah. we had, we went down to Alkibalon to hold okay. it. So that's why I originally got down to Alkibalon back in 99, okay. you know, um, through Timbuktu. And then Operation Get Down, they were in the city sub-center, matter of fact, was doing dinners. And they would deliver the dinners to Timbuktu, and all that was all connected together. I didn't understand then the, the relationships yeah, between was, some of these people. Bernard Parker, exactly. we think of uh, Paul Taylor, and we think of Marvis mm-hmm. Cofield, and exactly. all have been running together since you know they were like uh, you know all full heads of Afro hair. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Exactly. <laughs> and so, boom, that group. You know, I I started to get into that network, and so that was my initial, you know, intro. Connection. 
to mm-hmm. Al-Kiba line. I quit working at Timbuktu and started working for Empowerment Zone Coalition, which was headed by Doreen Turkwhite, and they rented the front office of Al-Kiba line Village at the hmm. time. And so then I spent some more time there. So, like, not, life just keeps pulling you back in Al-Kiba line, Al-Kiba line Village. Right? <laughs> so after I was working with Doreen, and I went on the rest of my life, and I... By the time my mother brings me into this situation, I'm working on my MBA. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I have extensive accounting experience, bachelor's. I've gone through multiple corporate jobs and then worked and all kinds of different things. And so I'm ready for like something like Alkiba Line Village. And so Linda and I worked together for about three or four years. And she ultimately went on to um, another position somewhere else. And I took mm-hmm. over the accounting hmm. and finances at the village. Okay, and in in that you are doing way more than accounting there. It's like you were you were called. Now I get it, like that calling just kept calling like right. over and over and yeah. over again. Yeah. And now you help them with a lot of what the vision of the village. When I think I'll keep a line village and and ideas, it's like okay, GMAC definitely I wouldn't say is the shot caller, but he has some influence in in the, in the building. You know, yeah. Uh, so with that, you have something coming up. What's Absolutely. coming up? So we got something coming up. We have uh, the first annual Alkiba Line Village Lunch and Laugh. And before I speak about that, I just want to say it's this recurring theme of me feeling like I had to be the big brother to mm-hmm. the proverbial little brothers and now little sisters. Um, because at that time in my life when I was doing the gang banging and then the Wymopit and all of those other things, I was just thinking about the brothers. But by the time I got to Akiba Line Village, my understanding and view, vision about, you know, my responsibility to the younger people around me expanded beyond just the brothers. And so, but that's what really glued me to the village. Um, my life experience had prepared me for the work that they needed me to do, but also it aligned with who I was as a person, not just from a cultural standpoint, but for this vacancy that seemed to be in my life where I felt the need to feel you know, an obligation to young people um, so or people younger than me. So that brings us to the Alkiba Line Village Lunch and Laugh. This is a super dope event that's coming up. It's a collaboration between multiple um, entities. Um, many of you may know Gail Perry Mason. Um, she has Money Matters for Youth an organization that teaches young people how to deal with money. She's someone who's done that very successfully uh, throughout her lifetime. Mm-hmm. We have Deborah Turnbull, who has an organization, African Herbs Woman. You all may not know her as well, but she's a young and up and coming. Pay attention to to that company and to her name. And then we have um, Tiffany Barber, T-Barb, um, a super dope comedian and a serial entrepreneur who has a strong commitment to community. And so the three of us are coming together to pull this event together as a way to raise money and kick off the campaign for an endowment for our Line Village. Our Line Village was founded in 1978. So we're moving into the 44th year of this institution. Um, funding is fickle. Priorities change from day to day. And if you're not on the flavor of the month, you may not be in somebody else's uh, funding offer and release that's coming up. So we don't want to continue to be beholden to trying to cater to what funders' priorities are. We want to cater to the, the needs of the youth in our community. And so that's why we're having our own events. Um, and this is the first annual of the Lunch and Laugh that we intend to continue to do on an annual basis to raise money. The goal this year is $25,000. I think that we'll exceed that. Um, but primarily, it's just an intergenerational after t- afternoon of family enjoyment. We'll get together from 2 to 5. The young people will greet you at the door. The program that we have there called Culinary Pleasures is going to serve a four-course meal during this event. Um, the beginning of it will start with the Alkibalon Village All-Star Review, which will be a 100% youth-led and directed talent show hmm. so from the host to all of the performing components this will all be young people doing their thing then after that we're going to go into the comedy show which will be hosted by t-barb and she's bringing in national comedian damon williams uh the tom joiner morning show and other very very prominent comedy placements um mm-hmm. and then we also have um 
local comedians, HB, uh, Horace Sanders, um, Danny Redwine, and of course, T-Bar, um, to give you some Detroit comedy. Uh, it's going to be a great afternoon. It's clean comedy, so you can bring the entire family. Everybody's welcome. The tickets are $100, and um, this is a fundraiser, so we don't we don't bat our eye about that price. Um, the goal is to raise $25,000, and that $25,000 will take the place of some of that fickle funding that I'm talking about where folks' priorities change, but our needs don't. So we're going to still continue to do what we got to do for our youth. All right, where do people get tickets? So tickets are available through the Alkibalon Village website. If you go to www.alkibalonvillage.com forward slash A-V-L-O-L. So even though I know it's lunch and laugh, I thought L-O-L, A-V-L-O-L was a great hashtag for it. So if you look there, you'll be able to purchase the tickets online. They're also available in person at the Village, 7701 Harper Avenue, um, Detroit, Michigan, 48213. And if I did that too fast, I'll say it again. That's 7701 Harper Avenue, Detroit, Michigan, 48213, right at the mm-hmm. corner of Van Dyke and Harper. And you can come into the Alkibalon Village and pick tickets up there. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, and and we'll definitely get you back because, you know, we got to talk Molly Wop and other things. Right on. Peace be. Peace. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.